Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Project Next, the podcast that makes business people smarter about the next generation of marketing. Today, we're chatting with Dave Knox. He's the author of Predicting the Turn, the high-stakes game of business between startups and blue chips. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. Dave, you have a unique set of experiences for us to learn from. Big brands, startups, and venture capital. You were a brand manager at Procter & Gamble, CMO of Rockfish, an advertising agency. You were the co-founder of The Brandery, a top startup accelerator. And now you're a managing partner of a micro VC called Vine Street Ventures. All of that comes through in your book really clearly. And one of the things that jumped out at me was the value of the strategic discussion around what business is your company in? In my experience, that discussion has led to a world of opportunities for companies. You obviously feel that way as well. Without a doubt. It's something that I think too many companies forget because they're focused on their market share, the thing that they're in at the very moment. When if they took a step back and really asked, what is our current product, but what is the industry and the market that we're really playing in? You know, the example I start off in the book is actually around Kodak, you know, a story a lot of people know that today the world is taking more photographs than ever before, yet Kodak is a brand that has unfortunately become somewhat irrelevant because they thought they were in the film business because that was the product that they made when they were really in the photography business. And that's a question I think every single company needs to ask when they think about their business and think about the total available market they're in. Uber wasn't in the taxi and the limo business. They were really in the mobility business. And if you start thinking that way, amazing opportunities and doors open up. Yes, the Kodak example was a well-known one. Let's discuss some other opportunities. You were sharing with me the other day one about P&G. Yeah, one of my favorite things that when you walk into the Procter & Gamble lobby down at their headquarters is they have a chart that shows their one degree of innovation. And what that's about is how every product they launched was in one way connected one degree away from a one they already had. So P&G is a company that started off making candles. And it was the manufacture of candles that actually led them into soap because the same basic ingredient. But it was their expertise in soap that if you shave off pieces of soap, well, you get laundry detergent. And one of the things in laundry detergent you learn is how to make sure calcium doesn't stick from deposits. Well, that's what led them into toothpaste and understanding that market. So those one degrees of innovation help you figure out that market you can be in because it's how is something we have an expertise grow into something. Flipping to kind of the modern times, you also have something like Facebook. You know, what business is Facebook in? Well, they're in the business of eyeballs. They're in the business of your attention span and you looking down at your screen, whether that's a desktop or an iPhone or an iPad, and how do you monetize those eyeballs and keep that attention and the the time? That's what led them to purchase WhatsApp, and that's what led them to purchase Oculus and Instagram and everything else, was it's about that maintaining of the eyeballs and that house of brands that they can create kind of coming out of it. So I think there's fascinating examples we can learn and see you know, kind of across the board in many of those different ways. A disruptor like Facebook, are their innovations faster and bigger leaps, or are they 1% away from each other as well? Yeah, it's the curve they're building on. It is faster, but it is everything is one degree away. 
you know, when they launched, they weren't in the newsfeed. The newsfeed wasn't a product that they had initially. What they're doing, though, is instead of thinking about launching new brands as that one degree of innovation, they're launching new efforts on their platform as that one degree. So launching of the newsfeed was a very natural one degree away from that. Their move into video and how they've embraced that was a one degree. So each of those things have been a kind of a very natural one degree. If they'd gone from the newsfeed to producing original content a la Netflix or Amazon, that would have been a step way too far. But doing that one degree of innovation each way is what's allowed them to realize this much grander vision that they had from day one, but they didn't launch it from day one. That's interesting. What about other marketers? I know there are people in packaged goods companies who are listening to this podcast. Are there companies in that space that are using 1% innovation to drive serious returns? Yeah. So one of my favorites is one that's yet to be realized, but I think is a good inspiration for what a large company could be looking at, Campbell Soup. So Campbell Soup, they're a business that's threatened at their core. You know, the days of stocking your pantry with a bunch of red label Campbell Soup that's kind of past. And they're asking themselves, what is their future and where they're going? And one of the things that I love that they're doing at the moment is they're taking an embrace of being aggressive with acquisition of next generation brands, but also realizing what it takes to work with those entrepreneurs that create those brands. And what I mean by that is one of the companies they bought was Plum Organics. And Plum Organics itself, yeah, I think has been a relatively good acquisition for them. But one of the things that came in with that acquisition was great entrepreneurial leaders. And so with the founders of Plum Organics, they lasted, I think it was about two years, a gentleman named Neil Grimmer. And Neil, you know, like every entrepreneur, as soon as the acquisition was over, his mind started turning to what's next. And one of the things that came up was he was really dissatisfied with his own personal health. You know, being an entrepreneur is a tough thing. And I think he said he'd gained something like 60 or 70 pounds. And so he wanted to better understand personalized nutrition and what it really takes of you as a human being to be healthier and different. And he was sharing that kind of journey with the CEO of Campbell's. And he ultimately had this idea for a company called Habit that was essentially going to be able to do a personalized test of how your body responds to food and to fats and to proteins and caffeine and everything else and come out with a personalized diet of what's the type of foods that you need. And when he shared that with the CEO of Campbell's, instead of just losing him as an entrepreneur, they actually decide to lead the entire funding round for this new company habit. Wow. And I think that's a really great example of realizing entrepreneurs are different And if you want to embrace them in the best possible way, you do that. Now, what I think is smart about that is, will it turn out to be a good investment? You know, quite possibly. But what it also gives Campbell's is that one degree of innovation. Because one of the things that comes out when you get your habit test is it will tell you a persona that you are. So me, I'm a a range seeker when I take the test. I could walk in now to a grocery store aisle and... I might see that one of the foods is labeled a range seeker. Well, suddenly I know that that's a personalized nutrition for me that is almost like a mass personalization. And that's a powerful thing that I think that's the vision that Campbell's is looking at with this investment, that it's got a good potential for learning, 
but it's also got potential for their one degree of innovation as they think about their future. When you're developing innovations, there are many methods for generating insights and ideas. You have a source that I find intriguing, hobbies. Tell me more about that. Without doubt. it's. I think there's a really fascinating when you look at the things talented people do on nights and weekends. Those are a glimpse into the future of where things might be going. You know, if you look in the early days of crypto and cryptocurrency, that was amazing developers in Silicon Valley and elsewhere that were doing that on nights and weekends. You look at the rise of natural foods, you know, whether it's the story of Cliff Bar or RX Bar or go down the list. Almost every single one of those was somebody that was baking something at home because they weren't finding the solution to the thing that they wanted and they knew they could do it better. Or just look at, you know, the craft beer industry. You know, craft beer happened because of guys that were brewing in their garages doing homebrew. And those are really good models of passionate people are going to be doing things outside the workplace. And those things might seem at the fringe at the moment, but that fringe is often going to turn into mainstream at some point in the future. I would add Under Armour to that mix. Kevin Plank was looking for a way to be able to play sports without the sweaty t-shirts and found a fabric in the New York City Fashion District that was able to wick away the sweat much better and built an entire company that's probably worth $4 billion today around that product. Exactly. And that's, you know, when I look at investments I make, whether it's the brandery or through any of the venture funds I'm involved with, my favorite thing is an entrepreneur that is scratching an itch. If you are solving that personal passion, that personal problem, that's going to be a very different mindset for you than if you're just looking at a market opportunity. Because entrepreneurship is tough. And if you are solving something that you deeply care about, you're going to keep going. And that's attention for corporations too. You know, if you want to think like a startup and do all these things, the buzzwords, where's that personal passion? Yeah, it's one thing for an entrepreneur to have personal passion. It's a little more difficult in an organization to be creating innovation where you need to get the rest of the company to come along with you. What's your advice for marketers looking to grow their business through innovation? Yeah, so I think those people that are looking to grow their business through innovation, the first is you have to go learn the rules of the playground and of the sandbox. And it's why, you know, in predicting the turn, I talk about being the, the game of business because I use that word game because all games come with a rule book, things that you have to follow and learn. And most big companies, you know the rules of big business, you know, because competition's always been fierce, Pepsi versus Coke, Chevy versus Ford. But competition is different now. And how an Uber thinks about wanting to just disrupt an industry is very much a different way. And so one of the things that I encourage uh, any company and any leader of a company to start with is go figure out how to learn those rules and figure out how can you get involved in the right way to be additive to the marketplace. And I think one of the best ways to start with that is by doing a pay it forward mindset. How can you get involved with an ecosystem and be helping that ecosystem out, helping those startups, those venture capitalists, everyone else is involved with that world and not walking in as I'm the big company with the big pocketbook and look at this amazing logo that I have, but instead walking in with humility and saying, I'm here to learn 
I want to figure out this marketplace and I want to do really exciting things alongside you. That's the opportunity for most companies to start with with innovation. Go learn the playground and then figure out what game you want to play. So assuming a company comes in with that attitude, what's the best way for them to go about doing innovation? Yeah, I think the best way to go about is recognizing first, it's not one size fits all. You have to do a lot of experimentation and to see what works. And, you know, personally, I believe there's kind of four different models that are out there. There's acquisition, acquisition being innovation-driven acquisition, where you're moving yourself that one degree away. So you brought up Under Armour earlier. I love what they've done in terms of the space of buying three different fitness tracking companies. Because every day they have 220 million people that are sharing their behaviors now. You know, they know if I started my New Year's resolution, they knew if I quit my New Year's resolution. You know, that's a powerful thing. That's not just launching a better shoe, that's connecting with audience. Innovation-driven acquisition is bucket one. Bucket two is investment. You know, how do you look at corporate venture capital that goes beyond just a financial investment? You know, financial investment, you're doing purely for the return. But what you want to look at when you're doing a corporate investment is both the financial return and the market intelligence. What can you learn about something? What can you learn about your industry, the future of when and how it's going to happen? The third is partnership. What partnership really is, is about two companies working together without necessarily a financial or a legal kind of agreement between them. It's not an acquisition. It's not an investment, but it's for the mutual benefit of both sides. And this is what we've seen corporations kind of start dabbling with because it's, you know, doing those search of, I have this business challenge. I'm looking for solutions for that. It's a world that we're very familiar with because of it's a purchasing of services. That's when you see these efforts, like, you know, originally the PepsiCo 10 or the Unilever Foundry. Partnership can be a really good starting place where you show your best intentions of working with the benefit for the benefit of all versus just the benefit only of your corporation. The final one is build or what I call disrupt the disruptor. This ability to look at what's taking place in the marketplace and actually go build your own effort or build something new and really build digital products, new services, new offerings across it. So broadly, those are the four buckets that I think you can start with if your company wants to go down the path of innovation. So Dave, acquisition, investment, partnership, and build, the four paths to innovation. In your book, you describe venture capital as the new R&D budget. Is that how companies should be looking at innovation? Without doubt, because I think one of the fascinating things about venture capital is you know, research and development is not about creating the next thing for next month. It's a long-term investment. And venture capital is the same thing. When somebody's involved with a VC firm, it's a 10-year investment horizon for that fund. That's the life of the fund. And because of that, they are taking a long-term view that they're not investing in that company to be great next year or next month, but great five years from now, seven years from now. And I think that becomes even more vital than ever for a big corporation because big companies have never been under more pressure to live by the quarterly numbers and where things are going on a monthly and weekly basis. 
And if you can work with a venture capitalist that gives you that long-term horizon, that's an amazing balance to the short-term thinking that you might be driven otherwise. I think that's especially true today because we're entering the fourth industrial revolution and there are so many exciting new technologies that are emerging, things like blockchain, machine learning, AR, VR, voice, internet of things. What are the technologies that you find most exciting from a corporate innovation perspective? Yeah, the number one technology I'm personally really interested for corporations is the rise of voice. And you know, the reason for that is I'm a pretty big believer of voice is the next operating system. And if we look at, you know, quote unquote, operating systems or user interfaces, it was the rise of the desktop and internet and everything that went into it was that first kind of rise of an operating system. And that created some pretty amazing, massive companies, whether that was Microsoft or Google or kind of go down that list. We then saw the shift into the second operating system, which was the mobile phone. And that caused some of that first generation of companies to die a la a Yahoo that couldn't make that shift to mobile. And it amplified the position and powers of others, being Apple and Google and Facebook. We're now at that third pivot point of an operating system. And what that's going to mean is, once again, we're going to see a shift in power, that some of those companies are going to get stronger, others are going to miss the shift, and they're going to die as a result of it. And that creates amazing opportunities, I think, for all of us in adjacent businesses to figure out what's our role going to be and where do we play there and how do we think about it. And the reason I'm personally so bullish on it is if you think about those first three things we've just watched, this being the third operating system, operating system one was about sight and reading. Well, that's a limiting factor on both ends of the spectrum that you don't learn to read and write until you know, you're six, seven years old. And when you age, you know, our eyesight starts going away. We can't see the screen as clearly. So that's a problem. Mobile solved that a little bit, but what solved it was not the rise of mobile, but the rise of the touchscreen and what goes into that. You know, I have six-year-old twins at home, and, you know, they think every piece of glass is a touchscreen just because that's what they grew up with, and that's how they think. Now, the power is that what you learn to do well before you read and write is you learn how to talk. And I watch the behavior of, you know, those six-year-olds with Alexa at home that voices the most natural interfaces that we have in the world. Because end of the day, technology is about how it connects with human beings. And voice is something that goes all the ways down to, you know, when you're a two-year-old and all the ways up until your deathbed. And I think what voice is going to create as an operating system of the opportunities across the entire spectrum of human beings is going to be a really fascinating shift when it comes to basic human interaction with technology. Now, the flip side of that is that it's also going to leave some companies behind. You know, you look at the ability of doing shopping through voice. Well, does that completely remove the power of a traditional retailer? If Amazon gets to decide, do you get bounty paper towels or Amazon basic paper towels? Those shifts, I think, are going to be fascinating. So it's the one, there's a lot of shinier technology out there, but I personally love practical technology. I'd have to agree with you. I'm equally bullish on voice as a technology, but I also want to put it in the context of what Bill Gates once said. We always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate 
the change that will occur in the next 10. I actually think voice is frankly being underestimated at the moment. And why I say that is it is largely being thought of as just an interface. Because we think about technology, the reason Gates said those words is we try to connect a technology with what it might be replacing. And so when we think about something like voice, we're thinking of it as how we interact with our mobile phone. How does voice replace the things we do with our phone anyways? And that is why we're overestimating in the next two years, because we're just thinking of that. What is yet to be seen is how does it truly transform over the next 10 years in the things that we took for granted, what's happening behind the scenes. And so I'll play that out like one of the examples is think about how voice will connect with other technologies. So within 10 years, we will have autonomous vehicles. You know, I'm a firm believer of that, that my kids will never have a driver's license because autonomous vehicles will be defined at that point. If we get into the world where that autonomous car, all I say to it is take me to work. I'm not making any of the choices I historically did about my commute. Because if I also say, take me to work, but stop for coffee on the way. I'm not saying necessarily stop at Starbucks or let's do this road or that road or that road. The human choice is being removed and is being given over to an algorithm. And I think we're going to look back and be shocked at the amount of choices that we've given up control over and something or somebody or some company actually controls those choices that we once made. So that's where I think about the power of voice as a user interface is actually being underestimated because of what it unlocks as the tip of the iceberg for every choice that will come below the surface that we actually don't realize that making that choice of voice actually created. That's a great point from a person who wrote a book, Predicting the Turn, a book about poker, doubling down on voice as the technology for future. So really good. Hey, I'm going all in. Dave. <laughs> Dave, this is Project Next. So my final question to you is what's next for you? Yeah, what's next for me is I'm doing my own experimentation at the moment. I left the corporate world of WPP after uh, Rockfish was purchased. And I'm a big believer right now that the gig economy that we saw rise with Uber and you know, TaskRabbit and every, everything else is actually shifting over to the white collar world at the moment. So what's next for me is I'm kind of living that the white collar gig economy and having a chance to really experiment with doing my writing, doing public speaking, podcasting, consulting, and uh, having a world where I live by the 1099s of the white collar world, which is really, really fun from a freedom and a flexibility standpoint. Well, great. Well, it's been fun participating in that gig economy with you. Thank you for joining us today, Dave. That was fun. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this edition of Project Next. Until next time, I'm Brian Martin.